0: Because man
1: must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's open our Bibles now to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, we're going to be here for four weeks, Lord willing. Hopefully not more, but um, four weeks here in Jonah. There's four chapters, so we'll do basically a chapter a week. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We have a pew Bible under your chair. So if there's a chair in front of you, there's a black Bible like this. Feel free to grab this and turn to page 821. So grab a pew Bible like this, page 821. If you don't own a Bible, um, these Bibles are free in the back for you to keep. So if you don't own a Bible or you just want a Christian standard Bible, because that's the Bible we've been using here, um, you can go ahead and grab one of those free Bibles in the back. They are for you to keep, okay? But in the Black Pew Bible, page 821. All right, since I'm going to retell the story after we read the story, I'm going to have all of us read it together. So if you have a Christian standard Bible... Page 821, let's read the story of Jonah all together. If you have a different translation, don't worry about it. You can just listen in as we read the story aloud to each other. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Ready? Begin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa... And found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea. And such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble. What is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? He answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, "'Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased.'" And they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Father, we praise you for the public reading of your word. It's an act of worship to just read your word. And hear it read aloud. Lord, we know this word was not just for Israel. It wasn't just for the first century church. It is even for Bethany Baptist Church this morning. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us as a church family, what your spirit is saying to each individual here, Christian or non-Christian. We pray that you would speak a word to us, that we would see your glory, that we would see your goodness, that we would see your power, and that we would sense your love. So, Father, we pray that you'd speak mightily. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. And so we know that we will waste our time preaching and hearing and thinking if you don't come and empower us and enable us to bear fruit. And so we pray desperately for your help. And we expect it now, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because we come to you, Father, in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So we just read Jonah chapter 1. There's four chapters to this story. Let me recap here Jonah chapter 1. So in the very beginning, the very first verse, in the second verse, God's word comes to Jonah. That's the way God's word comes to a prophet. Whenever it says the word of the Lord came to, that's sign. That's, that's language for the word of God coming to a, an actual prophet of God. And so here Jonah is a prophet. He's given a divine commission, a great commission, so to speak. Get up go to Nineveh and preach against it. Cry out, call out against the city of Nineveh because their evil is great before me. God senses evil everywhere. He knows everything, everywhere that's going on. And so he knows the evil there and he calls Jonah to go there and preach judgment for their sins. So so just like it says, get up and go, Jonah get up, got up and went. Exactly the same words, get up and go. So Jonah got up and went. Except instead of going towards Nineveh, he flees towards Tarshish. So instead of going 500 miles north, east towards towards Nineveh, the great city of Assyria, he goes 2,500 miles west by sea. So he defies God. He rebels. He goes to Joppa, to the port at the coast. He boards a ship. He pays a fare for this one way ticket, a one year journey on a boat to the other side of the world he wants to get as far away from what God's telling him to do as possible and so he goes he gets on the boat, boat's headed to Tarshish as he's going uh, a storm arises on the sea um, and so this is something that that causes the sailors great panic now um i'm not I'm not sea savvy. I don't travel on the ocean much. So if I was there on a cruise ship and I saw other people panicking, I probably wouldn't panic at all. But if I saw the, the captain panic and the crew panic, then you know you're in trouble, right? I mean, when they're panicking, now you know this is serious. And so, um, so they start panicking. Um, they go down. So they're, they're starting to unload things from the ship. Now they're a cargo ship. The whole business is to transport goods, so now, you know what, what happens is when you get in a crisis, you go into survival mode, right? You know, whatever you need to survive is all you keep, and everything else that you don't need to survive, you're getting rid of it just for the sake of survival. At that point, your mind knows what to, what to block out and what to keep in, and everything else is negotiable, and everything else is thrown over. So they're panicking. They're throwing stuff over, over the ship. They're throwing away basically their cargo, the money, the whole reason why they left, their business. And as they're doing that, Jonah is sleeping, sound asleep, like a baby, At the bottom of the ship. So there's Jonah. The the captain probably went down not looking for Jonah, but maybe just looking for more cargo to get rid of. Who knows? But he finds Jonah there, sound asleep. He tells Jonah to get up and call out to your God. Get up, call out to your God. That's exactly what God commanded earlier. Get up and call out to Nineveh. So get up and call out to your God. So Jonah gets up. He He goes up on the deck. Everyone else is there panicking. And the crew says, you know what? We need to figure out why this is happening. The gods must be mad at us. A god out there must be mad at us because this is not a typical storm. Someone here or some of us here are guilty and God is trying to get at us. So who is it? No one says anything, right? No one says anything yet. And so um, they say, you know what, let's cast lots. Now, what exactly did they do to cast lots? We're not sure. It could be the roll of the dice, you know, so everyone gets a number. You roll the dice and guess who it comes up on? Jonah, maybe like, ah, there might be a mistake. Let's pull straws. They pull straws. Whoever gets a short straw, guess who got it? Jonah, maybe there's still a mistake. Let's spin the bottle. Maybe spin the bottle. We'll do the trick. You know, Spin the bottle, and it ends up on Jonah. Do it three more times, and every single time it goes back to Jonah. We don't know exactly what they did, but you cast lots, and Jonah was singled out as the one who was the reason why they were in the trouble that they were in. So you can imagine these guys are scared to death. They're about to die, they think. And so they interrogate Jonah. What did you do? Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? Where are you going? Where did you just come from? Why is is this happening? And so they ask Jonah all these questions. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh. I fear Yahweh, the God of Israel, um, I'm here because I'm running away from God. So they start panicking and they're even more scared. First they were scared of the storm. Now they're scared of this God Yahweh who's controlling this storm and is after this guy who's running away from Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so there now it moves from like this senseless fear or the sphere of natural fear to now an informed fear of God because God is obviously doing something here. So they say, Well, what do we do, Jonah? How do we how do we figure out the situation? What do we do? And Jonah says, Well The the solution is simple. You guys just need to pick me up and throw me overboard. And the the sea will calm down. And so they're like, no way. We're not going to kill you. That's crazy. We're going to get more trouble with Yahweh if you're a prophet of Yahweh. So they start rowing harder and saying, no, we're going to shore. Forget that. We're not doing that. We're going to row. So they start rowing as hard as they can and use all their sailor skills that they can to get the boat to safety. And the storm just increases in power. Again, supernaturally, probably, in ways that are uncharacteristic, that they're not used to. But the storm is acting crazy, like there's somebody behind it. And so they try, but they can't move anywhere. So they're like, you know what? We've got to toss this guy. And so um, they pray to Yahweh and say, God, please, please don't kill us based on this man. And don't charge innocent blood to our account. So they pick up Jonah. They throw him overboard. And as they throw him overboard, the sea calms down completely. And they are even more scared. They're scared again. They're scared. They're scared first of the storm, then they're scared because God was after them. Now they're scared because it's calm. And so the sailors are still freaked out even more. And then Jonah probably swims for a little bit. I don't know if he if he just wants to die, so maybe he just doesn't even try to swim. And he sinks and he just thinks, Well, this is it, I'm gonna die now. And then a fish comes, swallows Jonah, and Jonah stays in the belly of the fish for three days. And three nights. That's a story. So what are we supposed to learn from the story? There's a lot of things to learn from the story. I confess that it was quite frustrating to prepare a sermon on a story like this because it's just, there's so many angles on the story. What, what is the right one and, and how do we get at it? So doubtless, you're going to think about this more. You'll have more insights. I'd love for you to share it with me and with other church family as we keep thinking about this story. But what I am thinking the main intention of the story is, is... Um, God is trying to... Well, Jonah is defying God, and God is is disciplining Jonah. So we're going to talk about the discipline for defiance. Okay, Dad's discipline for his defiant children. That's what God is doing here. He is disciplining Jonah. Now, in chapter 4, as you read on the story, he's really going to get at Jonah's heart. Jonah's actually going to bear his heart out. And so we'll talk about heart issues in in chapter 4. But in chapter 1, there is no heart on the surface. There's only actions, but we know, uh, we know that the heart is important. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. But it's hard to read our hearts, isn't it? Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful, more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? It's hard to read your heart. But Jesus said, in Mark 7.21-23, through 23, For from within... Out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. In other words, your actions come from your heart. You can't see your heart straight up. You guys can't see my inside. I could be a hypocrite right now preaching a sermon. You don't know anything about me, and I could be totally living like the devil while I'm coming up here pretending to preach as if I am serving God. You can't see my heart right here on the surface. But what can you see? You can see actions. And actions are indicators of the heart. For from within, out of people's heart, come all of these actions. And so in Jonah chapter one, you get a lot of Jonah's actions that reveals his heart. It reveals his pride, his foolishness, his evil actions. It reveals Jonah's defiance. He defies God. The prophet of God defying the living God. And so we get a picture of defiance. And we get a picture of the father's response to his defiant child. And so if we can understand a profile of defiance, if we can understand how God responds to defiance, then we can learn from this lessons that actually benefit our lives as those who are living under God's rule and reign. So the main idea of the sermon today, if, you're, if you want to, what's the main idea here? Why did God bring you today? It's to get this idea. You need to understand God's discipline, understand the father's discipline in light of our defiance. That's it. Understand God's discipline in light of our defiance so that we can gospelize the nations and our neighbors with gospel hearts. You don't have to remember that last part. That's the the result of it. We want to gospelize the neighbor. We want to love our neighbors and the nations with gospel, gracious, loving, God-saturated hearts. But to do that, we need to understand our defiance, and we need to understand how God responds to our defiance with discipline as a loving dad. So point number one, Jonah's defiance. Point number two, God's discipline or dad's discipline. And point number three, God's goal. So let's go with, first of all with Jonah's defiance. Jonah defies God, and we see, it, we see the clues here. Um, we get a profile of defiance with at least four characteristics, four or five characteristics of defiance. The first characteristic of defiance that we see from Jonah's life here is Jonah finds God's commands or his commission burdensome. God gives Jonah a command, and Jonah doesn't like the command. That's the first clue that you have a defiant heart. God has a lot of commands about a lot of things. How to be a neighbor, how to be a family, how to handle your money, how to, be in, how to live in society, how to relate to God, how to use your time. God has commands for everything in life. And there's some commands that we don't like. And it's different for different people at different times and different seasons of your life. Jonah finds God's commission, his command to go and cry out to Nineveh, he finds that command burdensome. 1 John 5-3 says, This is what the love of God, this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. That's 1 John 5-3. When you understand the love of God, every command of God is good. It's not a burden. Well, why does it feel like a burden? Because our hearts are off sync. Our hearts, our hearts are out of place. God's commands are like guardrails on a windy road. And when you bump up against the guardrail, that's a warning that you're going off track, right? Do you like guardrails on windy roads on a hill? Is that a good thing, right? So you don't fall asleep and just literally drive off the hill? God's commands are not there to restrict you. They're there to signal to you that your heart is off and you're going off track in a part of your life. But when we are sinning and when we're defying God, it doesn't feel like a loving warning. It feels like oppression. It feels like a burden, and that's what Jonah. See, that's what we see here. Jonah sees God's commission and His command as a burden, and so the clarity of God's command and our resistance to that command reveals the idol and agenda in our heart. That our, our, we have idolatry. We're worshiping another god, and our agenda is in a different direction. So question for you, brother and sister and friend here this morning. What categories or compartments of your life are off-limits to God's lordship? Oh, you love God in part of your life. I love God with my work thing because he's really blessing my work. But I don't love God with my boyfriend part of my life. My romantic side, that's between me and them. God has nothing to do with that, but God has to do with this. Or, well, I'm doing really well in my relational side, but my money, that has nothing to do with God. What part of your life, and it's different for different people here, we all have compartments of our life that we actually wish we could rewrite the Bible at some parts, right? Just white out some of the verses. Like not all of them because there's a lot of good ones. But there's different ones that we want to white out at different times because we are defiant in different ways. So that's what we see here. And why did Jonah not like this command though? Look at look at, look. at what's the command in verse 2. Get up and go to Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. This is an evil city. This is Nineveh, one of the prominent cities of the Assyrian Empire. Not the capital, as I wrongly thought before I studied. It wasn't like Washington, D.C. is to the, to the United States. It's more like New York or Los Angeles to the United States. It's a prominent city in the nation or in the empire. So Nineveh is one of the most prominent cities in the empire. It was known as an evil city. Nineveh and the Assyrians were brutal. You know, one inscription of an Assyrian king um, brags about this before Jonah's time. He brags about how they would intimidate and torture other nations and other tribes as they would expand their empire. And here's what he wrote. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me. You know what flaying is? So basically, like you'd skin a, a, a cat or you'd skin an animal. They would skin humans alive to torture them in front of people to put intimidation into the hearts of the people as they start to oppress a certain city. So he said, I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon the pile, and some I placed on stakes around about the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. That's just a, a picture of how, how uh, grotesque and how brutal... This people, they were. So um, they used intimidation to to oppress people. Religiously, they were obviously idolatrous and godless, from what we would say as far as who God is. Um, one, One picture into their religion says this. Assyrian texts expound an imperial ideology claiming that Asher was the preeminent deity who ruled over all the gods And as a corollary, the political reality on earth should therefore be that all peoples acknowledge the sovereignty of Asher's representative, the Assyrian king. To that end, the king was charged at his coronation to extend the borders of Assyria. So here's what they believed. Our God is the God of all gods. And if he's the God of all gods in the world, because there's a lot of gods in the world, but our God is the God of all of them. And if he's the king of all gods and he made this Assyrian king the king of Assyria, then the king of Assyria should be the king of all the other kings of the earth. And he should rule the whole earth. And so they would extend the borders, and they had theological, religious reasons for doing so. So when they would flay people, they would think that they're serving God by extending God's mission. That's what the Assyrians were about. You can understand why Jonah didn't like them, right? Um, so, so Jonah didn't like them. It would be like, um, you know, and, and Jonah was, uh, was an Israelite in um, First Kings 14. So Jonah doesn't like them for that reason. Contrast that with who Jonah is. He's a prophet, and he's a popular prophet. In Second Kings 14, the, the nation is completely rejecting God and the covenant God gave through Moses. and They're worshiping idols, and yet, you know Jonah's message to Israel is? Hey guys, God hasn't forgotten you. God's still going to bless us and extend our borders. They had a wicked king, Jeroboam II, and God still blessed them. So everyone loved um, Jonah's message because Jonah was a TV preacher that was always positive. He always had the good news for people. There was Amos and Hosea who were also run, running around those days. They were like, you guys are sinning. You need to repent. You're sinning. You need to repent. So nobody wanted to watch their YouTube videos, right? They just wanted to watch Jonah's YouTube videos because Jonah had good news. He made you feel good inside. He made you feel good about your country, that your country was the right country. And so, so that was Jonah, and everyone loved Jonah. He was so pro-Israel, even in the worst of idolatrous times, that people loved him. And now he's going to go preach to the enemy? Jonah didn't want any part of that. That would bring his popularity down, right? He might might, uh, be ousted as the most popular prophet in Israel at the time. Not only that, the people might kill him. I mean, imagine going to them and saying, hey, God's going to judge you. You need to repent to these brutal people. Furthermore, if they actually oppressed and flailed some of your family, what would you do? Imagine if you were a Christian in the Middle East and you were one of those country, one of those villages early on where, they, where the where some of the Muslim terrorists would would um, paint. Now I know not I have a neighbor here I love who's not all Muslims are terrorists, but but they were these armed Islamic terrorists. They would paint the N in in um, Arabic on doors of people who were Christian and on churches, and they would say, if you don't leave in thirty, this is how ISIS. This was their start. If you don't get out in thirty days, we're going to kill you. Imagine that some of your family had to flee and some of your family and cousins and your village was attacked and some of your church family was killed and some of your family. And then God says, hey, I want you to go to the heart of ISIS and go preach to them so that they could be saved. And you're, you're, you're fresh. You're not even healed from grieving, as if you could ever heal from grieving. You're not, even, you're not even, you know, it's still fresh that they killed your family and friends. And now God's telling you to go and love them and warn them. That's the command Jonah was having here. Now, Jonah was so pro-Israel, and yet he forgot Israel's mission. In Genesis 12, God said, I will make Abraham, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God was raising up Israel as a nation, not so that it would be the greatest nation by itself, but as raising them up as a blessed nation, when they get blessed, they become a blessing to all the nations of the world, all the ethnic people groups of the world. That was the mission of Israel. That's why when they got the covenant and the Ten Commandments from Moses, God said through Moses to them, you are my royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are to be my priest to the whole world. I'm blessing you. You bring my blessing to the world because this world is cursed because of their sin. And I want to save them. I love them. And that was Israel's job. And yet here's Jonah not wanting to share the blessing. Forget those guys. You know what they did to my family, to our nation, to the other nations around here? I'm not serving them. I'm out of here. And so Jonah flees. Okay, so that's the first thing, is Jonah is defying a clear command. The second characteristic here of, of defiance, if we're going to understand Jonah's defiance, is that Jonah runs away from God's presence. Look at verse 3. Of, look at verse 3, go back to the Bible. Jonah 1 verse 3. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence, the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into the inn, down into it to go with them to Tarshish from Yahweh's presence. I told you already, he's supposed to go 500 miles, am using the map your way, 500 miles northwest. So here he is, go 500 miles northwest. Instead, he goes to the port city right over here, which is 40 miles away, and then he wants to go 2,500 miles this way by sea, to the tip of Spain, the furthest edge that he knows at the known world. I am running as far away from God's plan and God's command and God's commission as possible. You will not use me to give your word to these brutal, wicked, evil people. So he runs from God's presence. That's what it says in verse three, right? It says you run from God's presence as if you can run from God's presence. I mean, he knows later on, he's gonna say that God is everywhere. God's the God of the land and the sea and he made everything. You can't run from God's presence. You know what it says literally in Hebrew? I mean, this is a good translation, but in Hebrew, it literally says he's running from God's face. He's running from God's face. What does he mean by that? We, we talked about blessing last week, remember? The Lord bless you, the Lord protect you, the Lord make his face what? Shine. shine on you. We want God's face shining on us. We love the fact that God's attentive to us, that he sees every aspect of our lives, and that he looks on us with favor. Right, the Lord bless. Uh, may, his, may he make his face shine on you, may he look on you with favor and give you peace. We love, when, you're, when your heart is in tune with God, you don't want God turning away from you. You want God's face shining on you. But when you're sinning, the last thing you want is God's face on you, right? You want to run as far. You don't want him looking at you. You want to hide in the dark. You hope, he's, you hope he's so busy with the 7 billion other people in the world that he's not actually paying attention to what's going on in your life and your thoughts and your feelings, right? You don't want God's face shining on you. That doesn't feel like shine. That feels like, you know, that's like a that's like a patrol, a spotlight from the cops trying to catch you, right? That doesn't feel like favor, That feels like trouble if God's face shines on me. So he's running away from God's face. Tim Keller says it this way. He's not running away from God spatially, but relationally. It's not that he's trying to run away as if he knows. Jonah knows he can't run from God spatially, but he's running away from God relationally. You know, you run from God. Being your center. So he's not finding God's face as his greatest blessing. He finds his greatest blessing in his national approval. The fact that he brings good news to his people. Forget the other people. I'm bringing good news to my people. He's a supremacist for his own ethnicity, so to speak. Not that he wants to murder other people in that sense, but he does see his people as supreme. And he doesn't care about the other ethnic people groups. He built his identity on his ethnicity, And when you build your identity on anything other than God, that's what the Bible calls sin. A lot of times we look at sin as, oh, you're breaking all these rules. God has so many rules in the Bible. Sin is building your life on anything other than God. What is the center of your life? Where do you find your identity? That's your center. Some people say, I would, you know, PJ, I'm not a Christian. I would never want to be a Christian because if I was a Christian, that means that I would have to put on this ethical straitjacket and follow all these rules. I mean, this book is at least 2,000 years old. I mean, the last quarter of it is 2,000 years old. And the rest of it is 2,500 years old to 3,000 years old. You want me to take an old book and live my whole life based on an old book? Are you serious? That's crazy, PJ. I would never want to be a Christian. I mean, this is so outdated anyways. It's an ethical straitjacket, It's just restricting me. I want to be free. Well, if that's where you're at, I could understand wanting to be free. Everyone should want to be free. I mean, even Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Jesus wants you to be free as well. But here's what you have to understand. Freedom to one thing is slavery to something else at the same time. To be free from all these other things, you have to be a slave to something. So if I I say, you know what? I, I don't want to commit to anything. I just want to be committed to uncommitment. Guess what that's called? A commitment, right? You're committed to being uncommitted. And you're a slave to never being able to keep your word to anyone you always got to be free you don't want to obligate yourself for anything in your schedule well you're a slave you're a slave to uncommitment you can't be finally free from everything everyone has a God everyone has a master and your master is either giving you freedom because that's the way you are designed to live or that master is oppressing you Jesus is the only master who actually dies for you and gives you eternal life and actually truly loves you so what does Jonah do here he goes down and says, I want you to notice this in verse 3. He goes down to Joppa. You see that in verse 3? He went down. I want you to notice how many times it says he went down. He went down to Joppa, and then it says later on in the verse, he went down into the ship. So you're going off of the port into the ship. So you're going down again. And then it says, when he fell asleep, in verse 5, he went down to the lowest part of the ship. So Jonah is going down, 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 down. Because when you run from God, you are going down towards death. You're not going towards life. You think you're running to freedom in life? You're actually sinking into death. He goes down to Joppa from Jerusalem. He goes down from the port into the boat. He goes down from the top of the boat to the bottom of the boat. Actually, when he's sleeping at the bottom of the boat, that part, the bottom of the boat is actually under the sea. He's actually below sea level sleeping. sleeping. And we know later on he's going to get tossed off the boat and he's going to actually go lower than that, right, in a fish. When you run from God, you are going deeper and deeper into sin and closer and closer to death. It's like a boa constrictor tightening its grip on its prey. And in this case, the prey has no clue that he's actually being choked out. That's what it's like when you run from God in defiance. So that's a second characteristic, is that Jonah flees from God's face. A third characteristic of defiance is that Jonah silences his conscience and conviction. Now, he takes a 40-mile trip from Jerusalem to Joppa. You have a lot of time to think on a 40-mile trip, right? Even if you're going horseback or by a camel. You have a lot of time to think. I mean, you're disobeying God. You're running from God. You could change your mind. You feel a little bit guilty. You know, you have that second thought. You have that other voice in your head. Don't do it. Don't do it. It feels like the angel and the devil, right? And you're like, ah, should I? So he, he... He keeps telling the angel or the good side, shut up, shut up, shut up, every time. He keeps silencing his conscience. The conscience is a gift of God to help you to not go crazy in terms of just getting totally overtaken by sin. But you can actually sear your conscience and make it insensitive by continually shutting it up every time it speaks to you. And so here's Jonah. He learned to silence his conscience. I mean, he gets to – so he travels down. He gets there to the, fair, to, the, to the port, and as he's at the port, he pays his money. Now, this is a one-year trip to the farthest part of the earth. You think that's a cheap, cheap fare? No. This dude, is save, he's using his life savings here, right? I mean, this is how bad he's thought about. It. Like, Not only do I want to disobey God, not only do I not want to go there and obey God, I will use all the money I can to get away from God. You've you, you got to use a lot of thinking. You've got you to silence a lot of conscience and shut your good side out a lot just to be able to do that. Because you're paying money now to run, right? And so he he does that. He pays the fare. He gets onto this boat, um, which is a one-year trip. And you could think this way. You know, a lot of people think this way. Well, look, it just so happens that when I got to Joppa, there was a, a boat that was leaving that day. It's an open door. Huh, God must be opening a door for me. Right? A lot of times we think that way. Like, if you have an opportunity, that must be God who's lining up the stars for you to do a certain thing. Could, could the open doors of the ship and travel and the money being paid, maybe he had the right amount of money, could that be a sign that God wanted him to do this? Beware of reading into providence. One preacher said, if you run from God, there's always a ship waiting for you. If you run from God, there's always an open door. God provides a ship, this preacher said, Satan provides a shipwreck. Just because you see a ship there for your desire, doesn't mean it's God's plan that you jump on that ship. Satan could be providing that ship. If you want to run from God, Satan will provide you with a ship to get away. You can't be like, oh, well, it must be a sign from God. It's an open door. Go right in, says the devil, as he grins as you walk past him into the ship. You meet a really attractive non-Christian who wants to date you and be intimate with you, and you figure, you know what? God, you provided me with this. I've been wanting, I've been lonely, I've been wanting somebody and so maybe this is your way of answering my desire. Like lustful or pornographic desires, God, provi- you know, uh, uh, obviously someone, God, or not God, but all of a sudden provide for you as a person to exercise your lusts or your greed. Maybe you have an opportunity to steal or to cheat people and you weren't looking for it, but obviously a, a situation came up and you could actually get away with getting a little bit extra money, unfairly. And you're like, oh, huh, I wasn't looking for it. It just came, it just landed on my lap. I'm kind of tight on my budget. Maybe it's okay for me to cheat this time. And you take the open door as a ship as if that's the way that God wants you to go. Don't read into it like that, brothers and sisters. Jonah is so hard-hearted here. His, his conviction and his conscience is so silenced that the storm doesn't even bug him. You know why we know it doesn't bug him? What is he doing? He's sleeping like a baby. I mean, these sailors, these grown men are crying up, up on top. And this dude is sleeping like a baby. He's, it says he even extended himself out. Like this guy is sprawled out, just sleeping, relaxing, sleeping soundly. And this is a false sense of peace. This is another way that, God can, that you can be led astray, not by God, but by your own sin. When you feel a sense of peace, you're saying, oh, it must be God because I feel peace in my heart. Someone ever said that to you? Well, I know this has to be right because it feels right inside. That could be the devil lying to you. That could be your own sin. I've talked to someone who would say, you know what? I know God wants me to leave my wife. Because it, it it just feels right. And and just looking at me straight in the eye and just you know, it's clearly wrong. It's just like, yeah, God wants me to leave my wife. And I, I know I know it's not in the Bible, but I know God and I know his heart, and it just feels like there's this peace that passes all understanding. It's guarding my heart and mind. That's sinful, brothers and sisters. Be careful of false peace. Jonah clearly has it, because it's it's not because God's giving him peace, it's because his conscience is is seared. So, the say, and then he's, his conscience is also silenced by the sailor's words and actions. The sailor almost quotes God in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, get up and call out to your God. Just like God said, get up and call out to Nineveh. Get up and call out to your God. You can almost hear Jonah hearing the echo of God. Did God tell you to say that? I know. I know God's still after me. Why'd you say it like that? Why'd you have to tell me get up and call out? You could, have said, you could have used other words. You could have just said, wake up and pray or something. Why'd you have to say call out? So, so even in that, he can almost hear God's voice behind him. When they start casting lots, you know Jonah's rolling his eyes, right? Let's try to figure out whose fault this is. And they start casting lots, and Jonah's like, "Oh, I know it's going to fall on me. He could repent. He can call out to God. Does he still? No, he doesn't. His, his, his conscience is seared. Even when they're questioning him nervously, he doesn't, he doesn't respond. He doesn't care. His conscience is seared. And then a fourth, um, last characteristic here of defiance Jonah disregards others who are affected he doesn't care about the effect it's having on other people when you are defying God you are so selfish that you don't care about the others who are being affected by your selfishness how do we see that with Jonah clearly he doesn't care about the Ninevites go to Nineveh and go preach to them nope I'm going this way right I mean I don't care about them okay that's clear he doesn't care about them but what about the sailors does he care about the sailors I mean do they they all have families Even if they don't have their own wife and kids, they all have parents, right? So they all have families. They all have people who care about them, and he doesn't care about them or their families. I don't care. I'm going on this boat. Yeah, God might sink the boat because of me, but still, I'm going to try to get away from God. I don't care who it affects. I need to get away from God. He doesn't care about the sailors. He doesn't care about their families by getting on the boat. And then when they say, call out to your God, does he call out to God when they told him? No. Why? Because he doesn't care about them They want him to call out because they want to be saved He doesn't want to call out to God Because he doesn't want to face God Even though calling out to God might save them He doesn't care about them They're Gentiles They're not Israelites They're not Hebrews They're not from the great nation of Israel The people of God I don't care about them He disregards them He even disregards their consciences He doesn't care that they're going to feel guilty When they're about to throw him over What do they say? God, please don't hold this against us. When they say, when, when they ask Jonah, Jonah, what's the solution? Jonah says, what? Pick me up and what? Throw me over. Is there another way to get Jonah over the, over the boat? He could jump off himself, right? I mean, he does not say, that's how, that's how much he doesn't care about them. He even doesn't care that they feel guilty that they're the ones throwing him overboard. That's how selfish and closed-minded he is to the, to the, to the other people's good. When we are defying God, we don't care what happens to other people. The hell with them, quite literally. He clearly disregards them. He disregards Israel. I mean, even though he's for Israel, for that nation, their their job is to spread the blessing of God, right? He doesn't even care about the blessing of God. He, He cares about them in the way he wants to care about them. He loves Israel too much, and he loves Israel too little. He loves them too much in the wrong way, and he loves them too little in the right way. That's what sin is, actually. Sin is loving something too much in the wrong way and loving it too little in the right way. If he loved Israel, really, he would be a, he'd help them be a light that they're supposed to be, right? So don't say that love means I'm not sinning. You might be loving in the wrong way, as Jonah was here. And not, not only does he disregard the sailors and the Ninevites and Israel, he disregards God himself. You know that God cares when we disobey? Genesis 6 says God was sorry that he made man on the earth when he sent, before he sent the flood with the story of Noah. God can, It says in Ephesians 4.30 that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. You think, oh, God's sovereign. He's in control. He doesn't care what I do. God is in control. It's not like he's, oh, PJ, please, please don't disobey me. You're going to crush my heart, and I'm not going to be able to function anymore. God's not like that. God's not wimpy. But... God does care, and God does grieve, and God does feel pain when you defy him and you violate his holiness. He's not feelingless. He cares, and Jonah doesn't care that God cares. So Jonah disobeys God. He says, I fear God, but he clearly isn't fearing God. The pagans are the ones fearing God. Who's the real pagan on this boat, right? Right? I mean, the pagans are the ones who don't know Yahweh, yet they're the ones fearing Yahweh. And Jonah says, I fear Yahweh, yet he has no fear of Yahweh with all his actions. What does this mean for us as a church family? You know, the Jews, when they read this book, they read it every year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They read it in the synagogue, and at the very end of their reading, they say all together, we are Jonah. And they're Jonah in more ways than they understand in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. But we are Jonah as well, aren't we? I mean, just this profile of defiance. Any, can you relate to Jonah in any of this? If you feel like you're the only one here, like, man, PJ's calling me out. Like this is, Everyone here feels like Jonah. We all feel like Jonah. We find God's commands burdensome. And yet God says, so what should, what should we do? If we find God's commands burdensome, we, we need to obey what we understand and trust that God knows what's best for us. When we run from God's presence, that's like Jonah did, run from God's face. Instead of running from God's presence when you sin, guess what What should you do? Where should you run? Run to God. He's a father who forgives. Satan makes you feel like God's this big ogre who's just going to blast you. It's not that God doesn't care. It's not that God's not angry. But God is a dad who loves you in Christ Jesus. The best place to go when you're sinning and in trouble is running to your dad, not away from him. What about when we silence our conscience and conviction like Jonah? What should we do? When you feel a little guilty, you know what the world tells you to do? Shut it up. Just be you. Just do you. No one should tell you what to do. Just do, follow what's in your heart. That's a Disney morality, right? The Disney movie. That's all the Disney movies. Just, just follow your heart and whatever your heart says, that's the right thing to do. If everyone followed their heart in this world, how would this world be? I mean, even in this room. What if we all just follow our hearts today with anything that we felt like doing today? Wouldn't we destroy families and friendships and culture? and our country, and our church? If we just followed our heart, really? So instead of silencing our convictions and our conscience, let's invite conviction. And let's amplify our conscience when we feel uncomfortable. Christians are weird like this. We want to confess our sins and feel uncomfortable confessing our sins rather than be comfortable in our sins. Like, Why would you want to do that? Because the real enemy is not the uncomfortability. The real enemy is the sin that's trying to destroy me. So that's why we will often, you know, we're talking to men. This is just one application, but it could apply to a lot of different things. When men are struggling with lust and pornography, which is by far, you know, I would say nine out of ten men struggle with pornography and lust. We t- I tell them confess it, confess to other brothers, confess it to your wife. You're Like that's not comfortable. It's not. It's not. But what's your other option? To silence your conscience? To let the, let let those lusts take over you and destroy your life and marriage? That, that, that's, that's another option. And that's not just for, for lust, It's for any sin. When you feel guilty, don't run from the feeling of guilt. Amplify it. Listen to it. Hear it. God gave you your conscience as a gift to keep you from going astray. Amen. But the uncomfortability makes us feel like the best thing to do is get rid of it. That's a lie from hell. What about when we disregard others? How do we keep from disregarding other people the way Jonah disregarded other people? The, the way to guard yourself from defying God in this way is to pursue deep, meaningful friendships with other people in your church and in your world. The more meaningful friendships you have with people, the harder it is to be taken over by sin. Doesn't mean you'll never sin, but the harder it is for sin to dominate you. Because if I sin and if I choose to give into some great sin in my life right now, you know who it's going to affect? It's going to affect my wife my five kids, it's going to affect my church family, it's going to affect the neighbors I'm trying to reach, it's going to affect my greater, my, the greater Christian family, all my other friends that I've been encouraged by. It's going to affect everyone that I've ever tried to talk to about Jesus. The more meaningful friendships you have, the more you have at stake, right? In losing. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have meaningful friendships. The reason why we want to push people away is so we can be free to sin. But that still destroys friendships and destroys people. So the way to stop disregarding people is to keep loving people, investing your lives in them so that there's actually stakes that happen when you fall. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing because we want to care about our family. We want to care about our church. We want to care about our neighbors. We, we don't run from accountability as Christians because accountability is not a punishment. It's a blessing to have meaningful friendships, isn't it? Amen. To have meaningful relationships with your church family and friends. Who wants shallow relationships everywhere? Where you really never connect with people. That's not a gift at the end of the day. It feels right to cultivate your sin. And so we want to run from this defiance. That's by far the whole story and the main point. You're like, oh, well, he's got two other points. Don't worry. The other two points are short. That's, that's the main bulk of it because you need to profile it. And so what's God's discipline? It's really one verse. What's God's discipline? It's verse 17. So you've got a runaway child that you love. What does God do? The Lord appointed a great fish to what? Swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I say this is discipline and not judgment. Why do I say it's discipline and not judgment? Is he going to hell? No. Is he killing Jonah? No. How long is he there? Three days and three nights. This is a temporary, this is a, this is a spanking from dad, right? This is not, I'm killing you. This is, I'm spanking you, but I love you because I'm not keeping you there forever. I'm not killing you. Why do we know that that God still loves Jonah and is not excommunicating him, but just disciplining him? We know that because he's called, I mean, one, he's going to still use him. Uh, In chapter 4, he's going to reason with Jonah. And he's called the son of Amittai. You know what Amittai means? Amet. Amet means faithfulness. He's the son of my faithfulness. God is faithful to Jonah as his child, not because of Jonah's performance, but because of God's commitment. And that's how God is with you. This is why, Christian brother and sister, we always should run back to God. Because God's love for you is not based on your action. It's based on God's covenant promise in Christ. So run to God. This is God's discipline. Now, God's discipline, just a few things here about God's discipline is smothering. Isn't God all over Jonah? I mean, everywhere Jonah goes, God is like smothering this dude. He can't get away from God. He wants to go on a ship, God's there. He goes into the ocean, God's there. It's like, he just wants to die. In chapter four, he says, I'd rather die. Just kill me now, he says that in chapter four. He actually goes off off the boat to die. Jonah wants to die. He would rather die. He wants to die, and yet God smothers him. And God is victorious. God's discipline is victorious. You can't beat God. I'm going to get away, God. I'm not going to talk to him. Nope. I'm going to get away, God. I'm going to kill myself. Nope. God is victorious. God is victorious. You can't succeed in fleeing from God or keeping the Gentiles from being saved. Not only is God's discipline smothering and victorious, God's discipline is temporary. It's three days and three nights. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, God God disciplines us for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, momentary time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. You know what? A parent who doesn't discipline his child doesn't love his child, at least properly. God disciplines those he loves. It says in Hebrews 12, if God doesn't discipline you, you're not his child. You're an an illegitimate child. God doesn't care about you. But if God actually will go the distance to, to, to bring a storm into your life, to get you to come back to him, it's because he loves you. And he's not leaving you to your stupidity and your sin and your folly. And so God's discipline is purposeful. He had a purpose for Jonah to repent and to embrace God's gracious heart for the nations. It's debatable whether that succeeded. We'll get to that in chapter four. He had a purpose for the sailors to hear about God. He had a purpose for Nineveh to hear the gospel. And he had a purpose for his glory among the salvation of the lost. God's discipline is for our good. God is our father and he loves us. You know, uh, my son told me the story one time. He came home from piano and he said, Dad, thank you for spanking me. Or first he told his mom, and then then he's like, go tell your dad. And so he comes like, Dad, thank you for spanking me all the time. And I was just like, where is this coming from? And he's like, well, I was at the piano, I was at piano practice, at at piano class, and there was a boy there who was totally just disrespecting the teacher, talking loud, not following any instructions, and then you have to sit with your child. I was like, well, what did the dad do? He's like, well, the dad was there, and the dad started telling him. He wouldn't listen to his dad. He told his dad to shut up, or whatever. And then... And then his dad um, restrained him, and then he started punching his dad's arm. He turned around and he punched his dad in the face. This little kid, and my son is just like his jaw is just on the floor. He's like, if I ever did any of this, (laughs) I would be dead. (laughs) It might not be discipline; it might be judgment, you know. Um, But like, and he so he came home and he's like, "Thank you for spanking me, because I, I could see what would happen to me if if you didn't spank me. I would probably be like that myself." And and that's the heart of a Christian who understands God as his loving father. God's discipline is not because he's mad or he hates you and he's trying to punish you. He loves you. He's calling you back. So brothers and sisters, non-Christian friends here, what is your storm that you're in right now? What is a storm in your life that God is using to bring you to him? What's the one thing you wish you could snap your fingers and change? And yet it's not changing because God doesn't want it to change for you right now. Because he wants to bring you to him. Don't despise, brothers and sisters, the discipline of the Lord. He loves you. And if you're not a Christian, I want to say this too. Because you're like, well, if I'm not a Christian, is he my father? Like, Does he actually love me in that way? Well, here's what I want to ask you. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a God who's a wise father, who does everything for your good, even when you don't like it? necessarily because it's still ultimately for your good. He knows better and wants to do good for you. Wouldn't it be awesome to have a a father like that, a God like that? That That reality is the reality for Christians, and that can be yours. God brought you here this Sunday morning because he wants you to be his child. He wants you to know him. He sent his son to die for you so that you can become his child. So you don't have the promise of discipline that God loves you for your good right now when you're being disciplined in your storm unless you come to Christ. If you do, that doesn't mean storms go away, just so you know. Um, but it does mean that the storms are purposeful for your good and not for your detriment. So that's the, the second one, God dad's discipline. Let's go to the last part and we'll wrap it up here. What's God's goal? What's God's goal in this whole thing? God's goal in chapter 1, verse 1 is that the word of God would come from himself to Jonah and from Jonah to the nations, to Nineveh. He wants the nations, he wants Gentiles, non-Israelites, to hear the message. How would God's word get to the Gentiles? It would be by Jonah being thrown. What's God's goal in this whole thing with throwing Jonah? It would be by Jonah repenting, as we're going to learn in chapter 2, going to Nineveh and actually preaching God's word. So God's goal is that his word would get out to the ears of people so that they can hear about his message of salvation and be saved from judgment. That's God's goal. And does God accomplish his goal in this book? I mean, did he accomplish it with the sailors? Did the sailors hear about Yahweh? The sailors never knew about Yahweh until this boat trip, right? Now all of a sudden, they're scared of who? First they're scared of the storm, then they're scared of Yahweh because he wants to kill Jonah, then Jonah gets thrown off and there's perfect peace and they're still scared. Why are they still scared? Because now they're informed that Yahweh is the God of heaven and of earth and of the sea. And he is actually the God of all gods. Not the Assyrian God, not other people's gods, not the God of money, but God Yahweh is the creator of the world, and he is actually God. And so you know what they do in verse 16? What does it say in verse 16? The sailors, what did they do? They were seized by great fear of Yahweh, the Lord, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They promised to follow him. They got saved. They were converted through Jonah's effective evangelistic ministry, right? Because Jonah sacrificed, just lovingly poured out his life for the good of the sailors, right? Not lovingly poured out his life. Even with Jonah's stubborn foolishness, God used that to save his people. You can't stop God's goal, even if you wanted to. Praise God that his goal in Los Angeles is not dependent on Bethany Baptist Church. And yet we get to play a part in it, right? And so God's goal will continue. And so when Jonah was thrown overboard, he was, that's how they were fearful of Yahweh and they started to trust in Yahweh. But here's the difference. Think about this, Jonah so Jonah's life was given so that they would be saved, right? But did Jonah actually die? No, even though Jonah was thrown overboard to save the sailors, he was not. Jonah was actually saved from death. He didn't have to die for God's grace and mercy to go onto the sailors. Actually, Jonah wasn't this great example of sacrifice. Jonah would rather die than obey God, right? But there's another person, Jesus, who would rather obey God than live. See, Jonah would rather die than obey God. Jonah would rather obey God than live. He was willing to die on a cross for sinners. He, he, didn't, he wasn't forced into dying on the cross. He went willingly. And when he went to be thrown overboard, he wasn't saved by a fish. He was actually plunged to the bottom of the ocean and was actually killed. Jesus actually died the only true remedy to save sinners and pagans is not just being thrown overboard in an act of sacrifice and being saved by a fish. It's actually dying for sinners and actually fully dying, taking the full wrath of God. Jesus Christ took the judgment of God for our sins on himself, and he died. He didn't just almost die. He was God punished Jesus, not just spanked him like a loving father to a child. God forsook Jesus on the cross. He judged Jesus on the cross. He condemned Jesus on the cross. He damned Jesus on the cross so he wouldn't have to damn you or the sailors. Jesus is the true sacrifice here. This is the gospel. That's why Jesus even said, you're looking for a sign? Here's what Jesus said in in Matthew 12, 40. The sign of Jonah, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man, speaking of himself, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus says, I'm the true Jonah. He was swallowed by a fish. I'm going to go to the heart of the earth in death. And that's the sign that you're going to know that I'm the Messiah and I'm your Lord. This is the gospel, that we sinners, guilty of our defiance, can be forgiven of all of our sins. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ. God is calling you where you're sitting. You don't have to tell anyone here. I mean, I'll be at the door. I'd love to hear about it if you have questions. But even right now, you can call out to God to save you right now, right here this morning, and God will save you if you trust in Jesus Christ and turn from your sins and turn from your goodness, turn from your righteousness, turn from your your religion. Jonah was religious, but religion doesn't get you anywhere. Look at Jonah's life. We're not asking you to get religious. I'm telling you to trust in Jesus and turn from your sin and your own goodness. Christians and churches, we are called to live overwhelmed by God's grace, We want to receive God's grace, not like Jonah here where he got God's grace and he kept it for himself. We want to receive God's blessing and grace. We want to be so overwhelmed with it that we take that grace and we channel it and spread to as many people as we can, to all of our neighbors and all the nations. That's why we live. That's why we give. That's why we are who we are, where we are, to disciple our neighbors and the nations. Because defiance is ultimately a defiance of disciple-making. It's always a defiance of disciple-making. Jonah was defiant in making disciples of all nations. And every time we run from God in any command, it's a defiance of disciple-making. So to close, brothers and sisters, understand God's discipline in light of our defiance so that we gospelize our neighbors and the nations with gospel hearts. My call to you is to see your sin, see your defiance, and run to Jesus for deep, fresh experiences of God's grace in your life. If you don't see your sin and run to God, you will continue to shrink in your love and care for other people. You will run from God and you'll be happy running from God. You'll be, you'll be at a false peace with running from God and you'll defy God habitually. You'll build habits of defying God. But if you see your sin and you run to Jesus, you will enjoy God's grace in your life. You'll share God's grace with other people and you'll enjoy, you'll enjoy it with other people. You know Elizabeth Elliot? You guys know the story of Elizabeth Elliot? She was a missionary to Ecuador with Jim Elliot. And um, they they had missionaries. They were five men. They all took a plane, and they landed to make contact with this violent tribe. And as soon as they they landed, they had guns. The, The tribe's people came out, and they had spears. And they were threatening the five missionaries. Now, the guys had guns. The missionaries had guns. And so... Um, they they put their guns and they started shooting in the air to try to scare them off. I'm not sure if to scare them off or after they were being speared, but the the tribe's people speared and killed all five guys. And you know what Elizabeth Elliot did? She was one of the wives. She had a 10-month-old baby. She learned the language before that, and she moved in with that tribe eventually a few months later, and she led them to the Lord. She led the people who killed her husband, her baby's daddy, Kill, she led them to Lord and she lived with them to bring them to Jesus. That's God's grace in your life overflowing to other people who you would rather not spend time with. That's what Jonah should, should look like. That's, that's the way our lives ought to be, that we see our sin, we repent of our sin, we receive God's grace and then we channel it to people in love. Not because love comes from us but it comes from God, overflows in us and pours out on others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of Jonah. We're just getting started with it, but we thank you for teaching us and showing us a mirror of ourselves that we are Jonah. Defiant, stubborn, foolish, senseless children and rebels. We thank you that your grace does not depend on us, but your grace chases us. We praise you, Father, that you're our Father, that we can call you Abba, Dad, Father. You love us. You care for us. You seek us, and you discipline us for our good. We thank you for your discipline. And we pray that you would give us sensitive hearts that receive and and, um, bless you and thank you for your love and your care and your discipline. We pray, Father, for any of our friends here who aren't Christian yet, that you'd create questions in their hearts and minds, that you'd be stirring in them a a, a trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for this word. We pray that we'd continue to drink deeply of your grace, that we might share it with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.